Our scripture reading this morning is Ruth, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. This reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 224. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your grace to us. It's a sweet grace to gather this morning, and so we're glad to be here, and we're asking that you would move among us through the preaching of your word. Thank you that you have provided us with a great redeemer, and you have accomplished a great redemption. And I pray that through the preaching of your word, you would put that on display this morning for all here to see with eyes of faith and with eyes of the heart. Give us grace that we might believe your word and act on it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this may surprise some of you, but I have been known to be grumpy from time to time. (laughs) My default setting can be to be a little grouchy, a little cross. In college, some had the audacity to nickname me Krabby Abby. Can, (laughs) Can you believe that? In fact, some who are now my friends said that when they first met me, they were convinced that I didn't like them because my countenance apparently can be austere or sullen or, so my wife says, expressionless. (laughs) So at times, usually when we're chatting about something happy or doing something fun, Shannon will say, are you excited? You don't seem excited. And I'll reply, of course I'm excited. Why wouldn't I be excited? Now I'm a little grumpy that you questioned my excitement. (laughs) Now some of this is just personality. It's just the way God made me. I'll never be accused of being too jovial or giddy. Uh, I wasn't the class clown, and I probably won't ever be. But a lot of it, maybe most of it, is a heart problem. If I'm ill-tempered, that's my fault. If I'm being cranky, I need to take responsibility for my bad attitude. If I'm irritable, and 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that love is not provoked, it's not easily angered, it's not irritable. If I'm irritable, then I should call it what it is. It's an unloving heart. My, my attitude is the problem, isn't it? And I really don't like this about myself. In fact, when I see a sour attitude within me, it kind of makes me mad. It makes me a little grumpy. <laughs> You can see, I have real issues, don't I? (laughs) Now, some of you can relate immediately. Yeah, my wife says the same thing. Or my kids say the same thing. And you're a little grumpy that I brought it up. I also know that all of you can relate to the struggle. Because even the most cheerful among you, even the most fun-loving here, have a hard time with their attitude. You get irritated. You get weary and burdened. You get grumpy. Each of us is tempted to get frustrated or discontent or depressed. And joy and satisfaction and contentment can sometimes seem very elusive, can't they? In fact, those of you who carry a happy countenance sometimes, I think, have it the hardest because everyone expects you to be happy. If I'm grumpy, people are like, ah, it's just Eric. (laughs) But if you're grumpy, people ask, what's wrong? Is everything okay? And so maybe it's hard for you to feel like you can be yourself. So we all have to fight for authentic joy, real heartfelt gladness and happiness. And perhaps for you, discontentment always seems near at hand with the kids, at work, when you're alone. Or perhaps your heart has seemed dull lately. Maybe you would say that you've been in a bit of a funk. Or perhaps there are some severe difficulties in your life. 
that keep hindering your joy, a hardship, an ongoing challenge, things that threaten your ability to be happy and satisfied. Or maybe you're just grumpy like I am, and you're fighting a long-standing battle to maintain a pleasant attitude and a happy attitude. Well, what should you do? What do you need? What can you know and believe and think about in order to overcome a negative attitude like that? What does chapter 4 of the book of Ruth teach you that will enable you to find joy and contentment and satisfaction and happiness? Well, let's look together at God's Word and find out. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. Again, it's on page 224 if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. I'm going to start by reading chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. Read along with me. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Well, as you have gathered by now, the book of Ruth is all about redemption. In chapter 1, we learn that Israel is in great need of redemption. It's the, the time of the judges. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. And there's a great famine in the land, the result of a covenant curse. Moreover, Naomi is in need of redemption. She finds herself in a foreign land with no seed, no descendants. She's in Moab with no husband, no sons. And there's no one to perpetuate Elimelech's name, and therefore there's no one to care for Naomi. So hearing that the famine had lifted and that the Lord had visited the land and given his people food, Naomi returns to Israel. And by the way, Israel was the land of redeemers. No redemption was going to be found in Moab. Any kin that could redeem Naomi would be in Israel, likely in Bethlehem, Elimelech's city. And as she returns, her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, comes with her. Ruth declares her faith in the God of Israel by saying, Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And once back home, Ruth shows her industry by gleaning in the fields as God's law permitted her to do. And there by divine appointment, Ruth encounters Boaz. And Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, which means he's eligible to redeem Naomi by marrying Ruth. He's a worthy, law-keeping Israelite of the clan of Elimelech. And he loves Ruth with a generous and a kind and a covenant-keeping love. So in chapter 3, as we heard last week, Naomi sends Ruth to the threshing floor and the season has ended. Boaz has winnowed his barley and he's celebrated the harvest and Ruth curls up at his uncovered feet 
And when Boaz awakes, Ruth asks for redemption. And much to our delight, as we read, Boaz promises Ruth that he will indeed do all that she asks. He praises her and assures her that he will act to redeem her. You could say that he pledges his love to her. But then in verse 12 of chapter 3, we run into a problem, don't we? There's a snag in the storyline. And now it's true that I'm a redeemer, Boaz tells Ruth, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And it's all right at this point to say, oh no, that wasn't supposed to happen. Yes, Ruth has secured her redemption. We're we're glad she has the legal guarantee of protection and provision, but we want Boaz to be the man. Aren't you rooting for him? This is a love story. Ruth loves Boaz, and Boaz loves Ruth. I mean, they just spent a barefoot night together under the stars. It's got to be Boaz. So we get to chapter 4 with some angst. What's going to happen? And Boaz gets right to work. He wastes no time. He immediately goes to the gate and sits down. And and verse 1 says, Behold, look, the Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. So the divine encounters continue. Boaz meets this nearer Kinman, kinsman, redeemer, right there at the gate. This is the family member that has the first opportunity to redeem Naomi and Ruth. He's the nearer kin to Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. Boaz invites him to sit down there at the gate. And the gate was where town meetings occurred and legal proceedings happened, as we'll see shortly. And now you can see in verse 1, so Boaz said, turn aside friend. Do you see that? Turn aside friend, sit down here. He doesn't really use the word friend. He actually uses a term that's, that's kind of derogatory. He says, hey, certain one. <laughs> one commentary uses the phrase so-and-so, calls him Mr. So-and-so. It's as if Boaz says, hey, so-and-so, sit here. Maybe we'd call him Mr. What's-His-Face. <laughs> it's a term of anonymity. The man is nameless, and he'll remain nameless. And then Boaz summons ten elders to sit as witnesses to the legal proceedings that are about to take place. And once all is arranged, Boaz explains to the nearer kin the situation. Hey, Naomi's back in Bethlehem, as you've probably heard. She's selling Elimelech's parcel of land for redemption. You and I are kinsmen redeemers. Are you going to perform your lawful duty as the near kinsman redeemer? And the near kin, much to our chagrin, says, yes, I'll redeem it. Oh no, again, right? But Boaz has left one crucial piece of information for last. Verse 5. Oh, Mr. So-and-so, one more thing. When you get the field, you also get a foreign bride. Have you heard of Ruth, the Moabitess? And at this, the near kinsman box. And he reneges his previous statement. I cannot redeem it for myself, he says, lest I impair my own inheritance. So that relieves the tension in the plot. Boaz can now redeem Naomi and marry Ruth. But it probably leaves you wondering, what's going on? What's the issue here? Well, initially, Mr. What's-His-Face saw the benefit of his investment. If he redeemed the land from a widow with no heir he'd add it to his inheritance. It would be worth the price, and it'd be worth the expense of the purchase of the land and taking care of Naomi. And so he says, more land? Sign me up. But when Ruth enters the picture, it changes the investment portfolio entirely. She, one, would be an added expense. Two, as a foreigner, she very likely would sully his reputation. And three, if she had a son, the land would go to the son to perpetuate Elimelech's inheritance. Mr. What's-His-Face wouldn't retain it as part of his own inheritance. Rather, his inheritance would be impaired. So pay money for the field, pay to take care of elderly Naomi, pay to provide for Ruth, then lose the field. And that's not even considering if the man wanted a wife. They can be a lot of work. (laughs) And dealing dealing with her in-law, you know how that is. So the nearer kin says, no thank you. (laughs) And by the time we finish verse 6, he has refused to fulfill his duty 
as a kinsman redeemer. And this man was bound by the law to redeem Naomi. That's why in your outline I call him a disobedient nearer kinsman. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 166. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. Deuteronomy 25, I'll read verses 5 through 10. If you can, follow along with me. This is God's law. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, like a Limelech, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, catch this, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Is a funny way to say it. But did you hear the command? Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother or of a kinsman redeemer. It has the full force of a command. It's a law. It's a commandment. That's why if the brother refuses, the elders call him and speak to him. They're holding him accountable to his duty. And if the kinsman persists, if he's resolved to disobey, what happens? The widow takes off his sandal and spits in his face right in front of all the elders of the city, which is a symbolic way of cursing the man and cursing his seed. It's saying, you're cutting off the lineage of your brother's house. May the same be done to you. It's the curse of one's name being blotted out of Israel. The same curse Naomi felt back in chapter 1 when she had no hope of any seed. So go back to Ruth chapter 4 and let me reread verses 7 and 8. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. This custom involving the sandal is much more than an ancient handshake. The sandal doesn't just serve as a, like a purchase and sale agreement. It's the declaration of a curse. The name of this man's house is now to be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now he removes the sandal himself. Don't stumble over that. He's in effect placing the curse on himself in this act. And I guess he's choosing not to spit on himself. But this isn't some customer transaction that could be disassociated from the law we just read in Deuteronomy 25. The disobedient near kinsman is now cursed along with his name. He's not in the genealogy of King David. In fact, he's only known as Mr. So-and-so, Mr. What's-His-Face. And that's why he's known that way. He's just like unbelieving Orpah. He leaves the narrative and he wanders off into complete obscurity. He wanders off having demonstrated his unbelief, his law-breaking, his covenant unfaithfulness, his cursedness. Ah, but Boaz... Isn't he a breath of fresh air after having taken a close look at this rascal? Verses 1 through 8 are meant to highlight the worthiness and the obedience of Boaz. They're the unbelieving backdrop to Boaz's faithfulness. They're the law-breaking backdrop to Boaz's law-keeping, his covenant obedience. They are the cursed backdrop to the blessedness of Boaz. Mr. What's-His-Face is a foil for Boaz. Look at Boaz. Once this other guy's barefoot, Boaz goes right to work. You are witnesses, he immediately says, this day 
And he pledges before all the elders to redeem the whole of Elimelech's estate. Naomi, all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, including Ruth herself. And he's eager to perpetuate the name of Elimelech in his inheritance. This is an act of faith for Boaz. You could call Boaz's law-keeping the obedience of faith. He's not concerned about his portfolio or his reputation. He's not inconvenienced by the work or the cost. He's not hesitant to sacrifice. He is committed to fulfilling his duty, to being faithful to the covenant. And he's smitten with Ruth. He loves Ruth. So he makes his pledge before the witnesses at the gate. And he's not cursed as the nearer kinsman was, by no means. Rather, he's blessed. The people and the elders offer two blessings. The first, they say, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Here, the house of Ruth and Boaz is blessed with a patriarchal blessing. Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. They indeed built up the house of Israel. Likewise, the blessing for Ruth and Boaz is that they would have many children and, and would build a similar house. And this blessing proves to be quite prophetic, as we'll see in a few minutes. The union of Ruth and Boaz will give way to the royal house of David, King David who was born in Bethlehem, by the way. So there's renown, there's worth. And the second blessing you can see there, the witnesses say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring or the seed that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now many of you are probably thinking, who is Perez? And what's Perez have to do with Ruth? Lately in, uh, in the Abbey household, we've been acting out the chapters of Ruth each week. So back in week one, we gathered in the kitchen, which was our Bethlehem, our house of bread, and we, we traveled into the living room, which was Moab, and myself and Colton and Bryson quickly died, and we were... <laughs> our acting was over for the evening. Last week, there was, there was much giggling when Jessa uncovered Bryson's feet, uh, the whole family was quite entertained by that scene, and we had to pause for, for several minutes. And just this past week, after Colton played Mr. So-and-so, Bryson received this blessing. May your house be like the house of Perez. And Bryson stopped, and he said, what's a Perez? <laughs> so maybe you're like Bryson. You're asking, what is a Perez? Well, to make sure you know the story, let's turn briefly to Genesis 38. Moving around the Old Testament a little bit. Go back to Genesis 38. Page 32. Let me warn you, this chapter can be a little earthy. But looking at it briefly will help you to understand Ruth 4. In Genesis 38, Caleb reviewed this last week, but it's good to hear again. Genesis 38, Judah has three sons. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And Judah finds a wife for the firstborn, Ur, and her name is Tamar. And read with me, starting in verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, son number two, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother in law to her, and raise up offspring, or raise up seed for your brother. So Ur dies, and Tamar is left a widow, just like Ruth. And what does Judah instruct his second son to do? He's to act as a kind of kinsman redeemer. He's to perform the duty of a brother-in-law to Tamar and raise up offspring or to raise up seed on behalf of his brother. But Onan is wicked, and he refuses to fulfill his duty, much like Mr. What's-His-Face. Look at verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. 
Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Onan acts, acts wickedly, very much reminiscent of Mr. What's-His-Face. And he's cursed. And the Lord puts him to death because of his wickedness. And then Jude is hesitant to give his third son, Shelah, to Tamar. And he withholds the right of redemption to Tamar. In fact, he continues to withhold it after the third son has come of age. This goes on for some time. So Tamar takes things under her own control. She has no hope for an offspring. So she disguises herself and she tricks Judah into laying with her. And as a result, she gets pregnant with twins. And the firstborn was Perez. So he's the seed born to Tamar, Perez. So in Genesis 38, we have Tamar, a Gentile who's widowed and has no son. She has no offspring and no hope of an offspring unless someone performs the duty of a brother-in-law or a kinsman redeemer. Does that all sound familiar? Sounds like Ruth's situation, doesn't it? Now Perez, the offspring, the seed, He's the offspring in the seed that is so desperately needed in Tamar's mind. So as you return to Ruth 4, it should make better sense now why the house of Boaz is blessed with the Perez blessing. Look again at verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring or the seed that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What's a Perez? It's a redeemer. It's an offspring, a seed that perpetuates the family name. That's what it is. And that's exactly what we see the Lord provide in verses 13 through 22 of Ruth chapter 4. The Perez blessing indeed turns out to be a prophetic blessing. So let's see how this works itself out starting in verse 13. Let's read the rest of the chapter. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. King David. Right away, we see that the Perez blessing was indeed prophetic. Boaz and Ruth marry. The Lord gives Ruth conception, and she bears a son. The Lord acts and provides a redeemer. The seed is restored, and a great reversal begins. We saw throughout the book of Esther, reversals that the Lord provides. We see it also in the book of Ruth. Once barren Ruth now has a son of her own. An heir. Remember, she was married for 10 years in Moab and had no children. But now she's wed to Boaz, and by God's grace, she bears a son. And there's no sordid tale between Ruth and Boaz. No scandal, no deceit, no wickedness. It's a righteous love story between two faithful, law-abiding covenant keepers. And this results in a restoration of what we've read, both in Genesis 19 and Genesis 38. Remember, Ruth is a Moabitess, and she's a, she's a descendant of Moab who was conceived amid the incest of Genesis 19. And Boaz is from Perez, the son of the sordid tale we just looked at in Genesis 38. And in both stories, Genesis 19 and Genesis 38, the seed is preserved, but through less than ideal circumstances. But here in Ruth, not only is the seed preserved, but there's poetic restoration. The woman from Moab and the man from Judah keep covenant. They show each other covenant love and covenant faithfulness. And the seed comes from their righteous union. And in this way, the Redeemer is born. 
And the women, presumably the, the women of Bethlehem that we saw back in chapter 1, now offer a blessing to Naomi. When we first heard from these women, Naomi was bitter and empty. Now she's blessed. God has dealt with her in a pleasant way, providing her with a redeemer. Her lap is full as she holds the baby that Ruth bore, the the seed that God has provided for her. And this baby, this redeemer is to Naomi, a restorer of life and a nourisher of old age. He will provide for her so that she's full and well taken care of all her remaining years. Naomi will enjoy pleasant provision and she'll enjoy protection from this seed. And the inheritance has been preserved. The name will not be cut off. Obed will perpetuate the name of the dead on behalf of Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth. Naomi's great need has been answered. Her redemption has been accomplished. Her desperate plight in chapter 1 has been completely reversed and overturned. Famine's gone. Naomi has plenty, thanks to the generosity of, of Boaz. Barrenness is no longer. There's a child on her lap. The bitter is now pleasant. The empty is now full. The cursed is now blessed. The seed has been restored. And the seed is a royal seed. Look at how verse 17 ends. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So when we zoom out a bit to the history of Israel, we see another great reversal. The book of Ruth began in the days of the judges, right? Chapter 1, verse 1. A time when there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But by the end, we have a genealogy that ends with King David. The David that would be Israel's great king. The seed who would crush the head of Goliath, the serpent-like enemy. And as the royal seed, David would act as a redeemer for Israel. This is what the genealogy in verses 18 through 22 is meant to show you. Note how the genealogy reaches back to Perez, the redeeming seed of Genesis 38. Here's where we see that Boaz is descended from Perez. And who else is in Boaz's uh, lineage? Tamar? Yes. Perez? Yes. Who else? Do you see in verse 21 it says, Salmon fathered Boaz? Well, listen to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Nashan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. So Boaz's mother was another Gentile, Rahab, who hid the spies in Jericho and is commended as a woman of faith, both in Hebrews 11 and James 2. So Boaz has both Tamar and Rahab in his recent ancestry. And now he's married to Ruth. All right. Let me step back and let's just summarize what we've seen in chapter 4. God accomplishes redemption for Naomi and Ruth. And how does he do it? He does it by restoring the seed. He gives Ruth conception and provides Naomi with a redeemer. He answers the need they desperately had back in chapter 1. And by what means does God accomplish the redemption? Who's the instrument that he uses? Boaz. God restores the seed through the obedience of Boaz, the faithful kinsman redeemer. This is the happy ending you've been waiting for. Redemption has been accomplished. And not just for Naomi and Ruth, God has accomplished redemption for Israel. Israel's no longer without a king. God has preserved the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. And he's established David on his throne. This is royal redemption. And you can't really rejoice in royal redemption until you see and rejoice in Jesus Christ, the one who accomplishes ultimate redemption for his people. You don't care about the redemption of Naomi. It's a nice love story. It doesn't impact your life. You don't care about the redemption of Israel unless these are a picture of your redemption in Jesus Christ. And because they are a picture of your royal redemption, this chapter can make you rejoice. It can. It can make your heart burn within you with joy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is your kinsman redeemer. It was through His obedience that you were redeemed. Just as Caleb said last week, Jesus is the true and better Boaz. Jesus redeemed you. He didn't hesitate and He didn't flinch one bit. He didn't shrink back at the cost. 
He is no Mr. What's-His-Face. He saw you in your great need. He saw you enslaved to your sin. He saw you having no hope and without God in this world. Guilty and unclean. You had forsaken your inheritance. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Cursed with no prospect of eternal life. And what did Jesus do? What did He do for you, brother and sister? He counted the cost. And He considered the cross. And He knew all of what the cross was about. He he didn't have to wonder about what was coming. He counted the cost. He considered the cross. And He said, I will redeem you. That's what He did. And then he called out to the witnesses of heaven and said, I have bought this sinner. I have laid my claim on him. I've purchased her. And I will bring this dear one to myself. That's what Jesus did for you. And then he set his face like flint to Jerusalem. He resolved to go to the cross for your redemption. He anguished in the garden, but he said, not my will be done. And he chose to endure the cross and suffer for you, dear Christian. He purchased your redemption by shedding his own blood. You were bought with a price. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He gave his life so that you could be redeemed. He died in your place. He bore all your sin. He accepted your punishment. And he experienced the wrath that you deserved so that you, so that you could have redemption. Like Boaz, Jesus was faithful. In fact, he was sinless in his covenant keeping and in his obedience. But he became a curse for you on the cross. He became like a Mr. What's-His-Face. As your sin and your disobedience were imputed to him, he was judged and punished so that you could have life and could escape your own judgment. So in him, dear believer, you have redemption Through His blood, the forgiveness of all your trespasses. You've been united to Him. You've been joined to Christ, your beloved bridegroom. And He loves you. He shows you kindness. He protects you. He provides you. He provides for you. He accepts you. He doesn't judge you as a Gentile. He's not hung up on your heritage. He doesn't misstep because you're a Moabite. He says, I will redeem you. He has said it. So Jesus is your kinsman redeemer, church. Rejoice in Him. Rejoice in Him. Love Him. Praise Him. Worship Him. He's your joy. He's your satisfaction. He's your contentment. He's your rock. He's your anchor. And Jesus is the royal seed. Boaz married Ruth. Ruth gave birth to Obed, and he redeemed Naomi. Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David, who redeemed Israel as its king. David fathered, according to Matthew's genealogy, Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer of God's people. Jesus is the seed that God preserved throughout the history of Israel. Tamar and Perez are in his genealogy. Obed, uh, Ruth and Boaz, and baby Obed are in his genealogy. Onan and Mr. What's-His-Face were thwarting God's plan of providing a messianic seed. That's what these guys were doing. Jesus is the seed of the woman prophesied and promised in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the seed promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Galatians 3.16 makes that crystal clear. Now the promises were made to Abraham, Paul writes, and to his offspring or his seed. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but Referring to one and to your offspring, your seed, who is Christ. And Jesus is the seed provided in Ruth 4. Obed, little baby Obed, is a type of Christ. Obed's called a redeemer in Ruth chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushed Satan's head at the cross. Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, came so that you might be justified by faith. And brother and sister, you are justified through the redemption, the Bible says, that is in Christ Jesus. By the way, death itself couldn't even thwart this great seed. Onan's wicked disobedience couldn't thwart God's promise of a seed. Judah's delinquency 
couldn't thwart the, pro- the promise of a seed. Elimelech's death and the death of his sons could not thwart the promise, and neither did the death of Jesus Christ. Why? Because on the third day, God raised him from the dead, and in his resurrection, Jesus would perpetuate his name in the salvation of his people. Listen to Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush his son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's resurrection talk. After dying on the cross as an atoning sacrifice, Jesus' days would be prolonged. He would prosper with resurrection life. And he would see his offspring. He would see his seed. And that's you, church. You're Christ's offspring by faith. For, as Paul said it in Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. This means Jesus is to you a restorer of life, and he's a nourisher of your old age. And his concern isn't with your retirement years. His concern is with your eternity. Jesus redeemed you to perpetuate your name with an eternal inheritance. When God the Father exalted his Son, he bestowed on him the name that is above every name, And at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as his offspring by faith, Jesus has given you a name and he's preserved it and he's maintained it. And you now have the hope of eternal life. You have the hope of an eternal inheritance. Listen to Hebrews 9.15. Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus died to redeem you from transgressions, and when he died, he purchased for you an eternal inheritance. You will be his forever. Nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus is yours Because in Him we have redemption through His blood. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Praise God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah for His cross work on your behalf. Now just pause with me for a minute. Isn't it delightful to meditate on Jesus Christ? What a great Redeemer we have. Amen is right. What a worthy Redeemer. Doesn't seeing him in his word make you happy? Doesn't it give you joy? I want you to be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Look at what he's done for you. He's redeemed you. Isn't it satisfying to know he's fully purchased you with his precious, precious blood? Don't you get excited when you think about all that God has done for you in Christ? He's restored your life. He's ransomed you. Doesn't that put a skip in your step? It occurs to me that these meditations, these thoughts could could be very useful to you if you're lacking joy this morning. I think there's an opportunity for you this morning to see Jesus and to be encouraged. Are you unhappy and discontent because of your job or because you're single or because marriage is hard? Could it help to lift your eyes away from these things in order to gaze at Jesus, your Redeemer? I think it could. He can give joy even when there's reason to be discontent. Or are you feeling dull? A little bored with life. A little bored with your Christian life, if you're willing to be honest. Have you felt lately like you're, you're just kind of going through the motions? Maybe gazing at Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, is the medicine you need this morning. Perhaps praising Him as your Redeemer can help you break free from that funk you've been in. And consider something else. Isn't this redemption comforting to you? Doesn't God's redemption in Christ give you hope? God loves to 
overturn fortunes. He loves to reverse fortunes. Jesus Christ laid down His life to fill the empty. He brings the dead to life. He makes the bitter pleasant. He blesses those who were cursed. He nourishes those who are needy and weak. This is the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, the the love that Boaz had for Ruth pales in comparison to the love that Jesus Christ has for you. The faithfulness of Boaz is nothing as compared to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. Boaz was a worthy man, but how can you compare his worth to Jesus Christ? Jesus was infinitely worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for you. Doesn't the faithfulness and the worthiness, the the beauty of Jesus Christ, doesn't it encourage your heart? Doesn't it lift your downcast soul? For those of you who came here this morning weary and burdened, doesn't this vision of your Redeemer help raise your affections upward? God is your refuge and your strength. The Lord of hosts is with you in Jesus. Maybe you continue to endure a trial and there's no expectation of relief. You're just tired and you're fragile and and feeling even too weak to lay hold of joy. Maybe you have chronic pain or maybe you're awake every night with a baby that won't sleep or maybe your heart aches because the house is so empty now and so quiet or maybe you're burdened for one of your adult children or maybe you just really miss a close relative who's passed away. There are a hundred reasons why we can feel disheartened, isn't there? Aren't there? A hundred reasons why we can feel dejected and discouraged. And to rejoice sounds right. You want to rejoice, but it seems hard. But is it possible that looking to Jesus as your Redeemer could be a simple first step to restoring your joy? Or perhaps it's the next step in fighting for ongoing joy amid your trial. Maybe looking to Jesus doesn't seem so hard. Can you do that? No fancy footwork needed. Just look to Jesus. He invites you, if you're weary and heavy laden, to come to Him. And He promises rest for your soul. Doesn't the love of Jesus Christ, seen in Boaz, but far surpassing Boaz, make your heart tender and soft? When you see the love that Jesus has for sinners, I think it's hard not to smile. Isn't it a pleasant thought, church? Jesus loves sinners. He endured the cross for sinners just like us. He died that we might be redeemed. And so I ask you, dear unbeliever, what about you? What do you think of this love, this tender, selfless, strong, kind love, the love of Jesus? Does it have no effect on you? Boaz took a poor, needy foreigner, a Moabitess, as his own, and he redeemed her at cost to himself because he loved her. How much more, dear friend, has Jesus demonstrated his willingness to receive you? Jesus redeems sinners like you all the time. He gladly accepts humble, needy sinners who turn to him by faith. He loves to rescue them from their sin. And this is why he invites you to come to him. It's why He promises everlasting life to anyone who will believe in Him. This is why He offers Himself to you and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Dear friend, His redemption can be for you. He stands ready to be your Redeemer. The only question is, will you have Him? Will you come to Him? Will you believe Don't be like Mr. What's-His-Face. You don't want to be like him. Calculating with no concern for God's law, not considering what it means to invest by faith, guarding your reputation here on earth, disobeying the Lord. He remains unnamed. He left the scene after verse 8, never to be heard from again. His house was cursed and his name was cut off. He didn't want to impair his inheritance, but he lost everything. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. You could say that Mr. So-and-so was one who would save his life 
but actually lost it. And I don't want that, dear friend, to be you. Even if you could, what would it profit you to gain the whole world and then forfeit your soul? You don't want to lose your soul, do you? So please listen, friend. Let me warn you. If you neglect Christ and ignore his invitation to come, if you remain in your unbelief and in your sins, then you will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Hell is a place of isolation and loneliness. There's no blessing. It's all curse. No descendants, no family, no name, no heritage, and most importantly, no fellowship with God your creator. No life, no peace, no joy, only punishment for your sins and a just payment for your disobedience. But instead, what if you decided to lose your life for Christ's sake? What if you chose to lose your life for the sake of the gospel? What would happen? You would find it. You would. You would find your life. What if you turned to Jesus Christ through faith and repentance? What if you called out to him to rescue you from your sin? Then he would save you. Because that's what he does. He would redeem you. Wouldn't you like to have a redeemer like Jesus Christ? You could enjoy his protection. You could rest in his provision. And you could delight in his love. So come to Jesus if you're here and you don't know Christ. Find redemption in him. Well, CMC, friends, visitors, Jesus Christ is a wonderful redeemer. He's a greater kinsman than Boaz. He's a greater seed than Obed. He's a greater king than David. And God has accomplished a wonderful redemption in him. Rejoice in that royal redemption. There's joy in it. There's satisfaction in it. There's hope in it. The redemption that is in Jesus Christ can bring contentment to the restless. It can give life to the listless. It can provide comfort to the disheartened. And it can even make grumpy men joyful. It can. (laughs) The common redemption that we enjoy in Jesus gives us as a church life and unity and zeal and purpose and steadfastness, doesn't it? The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. There is nothing like this great redemption, is there? Let's rejoice in it. Let's rejoice in it. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, we are grateful for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. What a redeemer you have provided for us. What a great redemption you've accomplished for us. And we thank you for it. We worship you for it. We give you praise. Be with us as we depart from this place this morning that we would carry these gospel truths with us throughout the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.